0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind,
2: from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. We are entering into Chinese New Year here. We're about to
2: enter the year of the dog. Leaving behind the year of the rooster.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we... We occasionally touch on Chinese and Eastern topics throughout the year, but this is always a good time to to really focus on a, a couple of really good ones. And right. that's what we have today.
2: Yeah, so the Lunar New Year is coming up on Friday, February 16th. Mm-hmm. And this week we're doing a couple of episodes uh, related to Chinese culture and some technological and scientific tie-ins. And so today's episode is going to feature uh, – the, the bulk of it is going to be an interview we did with the author of a book about the history – of The Chinese Typewriter. The full title of the book is The Chinese Typewriter, A History, and it's published by MIT Press uh, in 2017.
1: Yeah, it's available wherever you get your books. You can get it in
2: digital form or print. Now, Robert, you you picked this book out. What appealed to you about it?
1: Uh, Well, I basically received a release about it, about this book, um, from Thomas S. Mulaney, who's associate professor of Chinese history at Stanford University and curator of the international uh, uh, exhibition "Radical Machines: China, Chinese in the Information Age." and i i really hadn't thought about this before but i instantly thought yeah well you know the, the chinese language mandarin chinese characters uh how does that fit into the information age how has that fit into the information age and uh, so i said well let's let's get back to that let's let's read this book and uh, and see what it has to offer and it was a really
2: mind-blowing read yeah really interesting in thinking about the ways that uh technology form the substrates on which our languages evolve and like uh, this tension that's constantly existing with information technology, does the technology change the way you use information or will the way you use information shape the necessary features of technology? So we'll definitely be discussing that with uh, with Thomas Mullaney, But before we get into that, I think we should just Address the issue behind the subject of the Chinese typewriter. Now, if somebody isn't familiar with the written version of Chinese, with Chinese characters, it might not be immediately apparent to them why the idea of a Chinese typewriter would be especially interesting.
1: Yeah, that's right, because you might just think, oh, well, we have our letters, they have their letters. Wrong. Uh, Chinese does not have an alphabet. Now, certainly you can, you can write Chinese in, say, uh, Pinyin, which is a version of our Roman alphabet with uh, with with accent marks added to let you know uh, how the tones are to be pronounced. Uh, but for the most part, as Melani points out, you have this colonialism globalization uh, of language that spreads around the world, and it's based on that Roman alphabet. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, you have you have the the Chinese with these these characters that do not fit within that system. You can essentially think of it as a system of pictograms, but they're highly stylized pictures of what they represent. As many as 90% are compounds of a meaning element and a sound element. Mm -hmm. So you can't just look at them and say, oh, that's a river, that's a a robot, etc. They're they're far more complex than that. And uh, I've read that you need to know somewhere between... 1,200 and 1,500 characters to get the basic gist of a Chinese newspaper. But you'd need to know between 2,000 and 3,000 characters to really get a sufficient understanding of the information. Meanwhile, a well-educated Chinese speaker in today's world likely knows 6,000 to 8,000 characters. And if you're wondering, well, where does that stand in in terms of all the characters? Well, you can look at some of the major Chinese uh, lexicons out there And they're numbering in the tens of thousands. One uh, figure I saw was 47,000 Chinese
2: characters. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Chinese speakers would recognize 47,000 characters when reading in the same way that you might read, you know, a a book of specialized terminology that has specialized uh, words in English, and you wouldn't necessarily know what those words mean.
1: Right, yeah. Think of the the, the thickest dictionary, English dictionary you've ever picked up, and think of all the words that uh, that instantly don't uh, resonate
2: with you, and you'll have some sense of what we're looking at here. But you do have this major difference in that in a language like English... You can look at a word and it's made out of letters that are familiar to you, even if the word isn't familiar to you. So even if you have no idea what a word means, you could almost instantly transcribe the word on a typewriter or keyboard or whatever. With Chinese characters, not necessarily the case. That's right. Uh, and another thing I want to touch on here is that in
1: China, you have eight major dialect groups, and we call these dialects. But as Mulaney points out, they're as mutually distinct as Portuguese and French uh, in some cases. Uh, but Mandarin is the official language, of course. But still, all these different dialects they they depend upon the Chinese character system. So, so whether you're talking about Mandarin or Cantonese uh it's the same characters but in practice cantonese adds i think about 3000 specialized
2: characters on top of that but think about the unifying influence of having characters like that so you can have a country mm-hmm. that is you know is considered a people the chinese people of the chinese country and they share a government and in a sense they share a language because they have these shared characters even though they speak very very distinct oral languages
1: that's right and then you enter this age where your internal system of communication, written communication, is at odds with the with what's really becoming kind of a global standard. And it's that tug of war that most of Mulaney's book focuses on.
2: All right, then, Robert, are you ready to go to our interview
1: with Thomas Mulaney? Let's do it. All right, Tom, thank you for joining us on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we have uh, been reading your book, The Chinese Typewriter, A History. I suppose the first question I have for you here today is uh, when you talk to people about your book, do you encounter any of the key historic reactions to and prejudices against just the idea, the notion of a Chinese typewriter?
0: I would say all the time. Uh It's what one of the things that was at first surprising. And then I and then I had more time to think about it over the course of working on the book was that the consistency with which people would imagine in their mind's eye what they assumed or expected a Chinese typewriter to look like. And um, in essence, regardless of where I was in the U.S. or in Europe or in Asia, including China in, in many cases, the assumption kind of led someone to the same expectation, which was a, a massive machine... With thousands of keys on this gigantic keyboard, uh, and what's surprising about this is that people arrive at this conclusion without necessarily or almost never having seen, uh, such an image. They just sort of create it algorithmically in their mind. Uh, and I think what I came to the kind of the conclusion of is that the, the What's going on in in our minds when we when we think about a Chinese typewriter is a kind of it's like a mental algorithm. It's a it's a it's a very short computer program that runs in our mind and it goes something like this. Well, I know that by definition, a typewriter is a machine with a keyboard and keys. I know that there is one key per letter. I know that Chinese doesn't have letters. It has characters. And I know that there are tens of thousands of characters, or I've heard that, ergo, I've reached the conclusion about what in my mind's eye a Chinese typewriter looks like. Um, and in the book, what I try to do is say, now there is a total equation set up between keyboards, keys, and typewriters. There's no such thing as a typewriter without keys in, in, in the market, uh, and also in our imagination. But if we go back early enough, in the history of the typewriter, including the Western typewriter, we very quickly get into this, you know, sort of amazing and very diverse kind of Jurassic ecology of typewriters. Uh, many different types of typewriters, including typewriters that had no keys or keyboards themselves, and that, in an essence, the Chinese typewriter, which is a key which is a typewriter that has no keyboard and no keys, is a descendant of. A sort of early, early species of typewriter that in the West died out—the typewriter with no keyboard—but in China, um, you know, lived on and continued its its its, its evolution. Um, and so now, when when the two meet again in the year 1970, 80, 90, 2000, 2010, uh, when someone from the descendants of the keyboard typewriter looks over and sees the descendant of the non-keyboard typewriter. They don't know what to make of it. They don't know what they're looking at.
2: So there's a concept you talk about in the book uh, that you call the techno-linguistic dimensions of a language. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you mean by the techno-linguistic dimensions of a language. And so, for example, what are some of the techno-linguistic aspects of modern American English as a point of reference for our listeners, and then how... uh How do those same types of uh, technolinguistic dimensions inform the creation of the Chinese typewriter in history?
0: In essence, the the technolinguistic dimension is every part of writing text technology that is essential for writing to work and for text technologies to function, but that are not Uh, simply superficially on the page or on the screen, the stuff we read. Uh, And so to give an example, I I remember earlier when I was uh, in the early stages of working on this project, I am a big believer in kind of practice-based theory. So take classes and things and really try to understand the processes and machines you're thinking about because insight will emerge um, in that. And so I, I enrolled in this intensive, uh, letterpress, uh, practicum, so movable type, typesetting, and, uh, for, for English, because I wanted to step into, you know, this space that there are obviously many, many practitioners of, even today, but certainly over history, and just see what it looks like. And there was one, I mean, it was an amazing, I took it at the San Francisco Center for the Book, it was just absolutely tremendous, um, but there's one thing in particular that stayed with me, which is seems might seem incidental to someone who is in that world for a long time, and that is uh, when when you or I look at a printed poster or a book or an article or whatever it is, uh, and we see the you know the text block in the middle of the page, and then we see the margins, the one inch margins on the left and right, and top, you know, top and bottom. I, I would venture to guess that you as as I we see emptiness, we see space, we see there is nothing there. Yes, there's paper, but that's not where the text is. And so if you, if you just stop there, it would be easy to imagine that, that it really is made up of nothingness. There's nothing there. That's not where language happens and so forth. When you, when you uh, go through the process of learning, in this case, letterpress, uh, you realize that you actually have to build emptiness. You have to build space on the page, quite literally, with pieces of metal. Uh, so if you want there to be spacing between the lines, you need, you need letting. You know, and this is not just a digital term in our, you know, Adobe platform. This is a, this is a thin sliver of metal whose, whose dimensionality will, will give you so much space between the lines. And then you use these various sized pieces of wood, uh, sometimes referred to as furniture that you build up around the block of text that you're going to situate on the page. You lock it in there really tight with these things called coins that you kind of put in place and then kind of jack into position and hold it onto the 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 type bed so it doesn't wiggle around when you're printing. Um, and then and then you put you know you you ink it and you pull the paper through and then it comes out on the other side and there you have it. A text block with one inch margins and so much space and emptiness and so much text like black on white. And suddenly, your view of space, or at least for me, the view of space changed radically. It takes a lot of stuff to make nothing happen. It takes a lot of and these and these pieces of wooden furniture they don't have writing on them. I can't read a piece of these you know these wooden blocks um so they're not operating in the same kind of heuristic interpretive space as the actual let's say it's a poem by a you know, or, or an essay or a broadside that I can read and think about and debate and maybe it's a love letter or a wedding invitation. All of this stuff that's so full of meaning in the classic sense of the word. Well, there's all of this meaninglessness, like these wooden pieces of thing, like these, these flats of metal that have to, you know, for letting. Um, there's all of this meaninglessness that goes into making that meaning work, whether, whether it's a wedding invitation or, you know, or, or, Uh, an iconoclastic essay. Um, That wood, that metal, is for me uh, part of this admittedly very large category of techno-linguistic. It's all of the the stuff, but also, also all of the mental models, categorization systems, workflows and processes and things that go into making something work on the page. Experts Practitioners, people in these industries, they know these things. I mean, it's second nature for them. So it's it's not as if I've I, I discovered the lost city of Atlantis. But um, if they do their job well, and and if they succeed in their goal, their goal is to keep that stuff invisible. You know, you don't want you don't want a badly printed poem that kind of show. You know, some, maybe maybe to get some ink got on one of those pieces of wood, and it accidentally. Ink the page. Well, that's a failure. You know that that means it didn't work out. You want that techno-linguistic stuff to remain invisible. Um, and but for, as for myself, as an historian of language change, of text technologies, of especially of a, a family of text technologies on the Chinese side, that as I argue in the book, have have been placed at, in this. Very asymmetric, unequal position in the global history of information technology. We, as historians of information technology, we, we really do need to pay attention to that meaninglessness because oftentimes it's in the space of the meaninglessness, not the not the stuff that's on the page, the poem itself, where the action is. Sometimes it is, but it's it's not necessarily in the poem where the action is. It, it might actually be in the stuff. Around the poem that makes that poem printable, transmittable, savable in the first place. An example from Asia that I really like to show actually comes from Japan. There's this, uh, there's this wonderful YouTube video that shows a turn of the century Japanese automaton, uh, uh, a calligraphy automaton. It is constructed to look um, uh, like a Chinese woman with a brush in hand. And when the gears move, uh, the the automaton composes a really beautifully wrought Chinese character, a kanji character. And uh, the video shows I think it's newscasters. it's part of a news broadcast in Japan. Uh, contemporary, maybe a few years ago, showing people, you know, like, ooing and eyeing about this. And everyone is paying attention to what's happening on the page. Uh, the character and what it looks like as it comes out. But then in the back, in the sort of the end of the video and also behind the automaton, for me is where the actual action is. They show the, the carefully carved series of Really wobbly and wobbly um, wooden camshafts that are tucked away in the back of and the base of the automaton. That when this kind of uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but when this guiding almost almost like a almost like a record a uh, record player uh, arm and needle is is tracing over these camshafts as they turn, it's translating. The machine is translating the shape of those camshafts into the movement of the automaton, which is then producing this perfect character on the page. For me, those wooden camshafts, uh, the, the construction of them, the, the figuring out what shape each one needs to be and what sequence and how do we build this device that translates it into a character, that to me is actually the location of language. But if we were to take those camshafts you know, disassemble the machine and I just hand you a bunch of they look like, you know they look like wooden plates, but they're not perfectly circular. They've got a wobbly, wobbly kind of edge. If I just handed them to you and said, what character is this? What 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 Japanese character is this? You couldn't read it. Uh the only way that it produces that character is in this careful sequence. Um so this is this is for me at least this is really interesting. Those those wooden camshafts you know, crafted by hand, and at the you know in the late nineteenth, uh, late late nineteenth, early twentieth century, these um, these camshafts are not a representation of that character, of that Japanese character that comes out the other side. They quite literally are that character uh, when assembled in a particular sequence. So that's that to me is the techno-linguistic. It is this vast space of expert action and care and attention and practice, um, but it's not something you can just simply read uh, in a naked eye sense the way that we might be able to read an essay or a poem and debate about it. But all of this meaninglessness, this uninterpretability, is what makes language work. Without it, language just ceases to function in any language, uh, Chinese, English, Japanese, you name it.
2: That explanation almost makes me think of like the, the base pairs or the gene that generate a phenotype in an animal that we only interact with the external phenotype unless you're a, you know, genetic engineer or researcher, but that the, th- the thing in the external world is literally generated by this, you know, behind the scenes code.
0: I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's something that if you were just, you just look at it at the face of it. And and this is true in, you know, this is true in the realm of, uh, certainly in the realm of early computing and contemporary computing. The, you know, if we we experience our MacBook Pros the way that we do because of the success of a series of engineers and product designers who went out of their way to conceal as much as possible what's really going on. So when I type the letter, when I when I depress the key, <laughs> that has the symbol that I recognize as F or G or H on it, and then it appears on the screen, it happens so fast that I, I can kind of live inside the fantasy, live inside the fiction, that in essence this thing is just like a digital typewriter. It's just I push it, it translated some motion, and then it put printed it on the page. But of course, that's not how it works. I mean, there's, there's all of these translations going on to get from point A to point B, Double Z. There's there's regulations and coding standards, and and then quite literally, you know, physical logic gates <laughs> and and um, but and so that space. If you were just to take away the key that says F and take away the screen that that basically all the screen is doing is showing you that the the bitstream worked. But imagine what it looks like if you take away the screen and take away the symbols on the keys. What exactly is the letter S at that point? Uh, it's still there. If you were to push the button and the computer's on, it would still be doing what it's supposed to be doing. But the 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 the, the kind of circuit of interpretation that the human needs would not be complete. I would not know whether or not I, what letter I had, had, had typed. So what I'm interested in, I mean, I'm not to the exclusion of the surface parts of language, but I think I want to include the spaces of language, which, like the, the genotype-phenotype relationship, are happening in this completely dark room. Um, you know, it, how, how do we think about the genotype without recourse to the phenotype? Um, might be one way to put it, but I'm not sure if that gets us any, <laughs> any further.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more with Thomas Mullaney. All right, we're back. So, to many Westerners, Mandarin Chinese presents certain challenges. Chinese characters present certain challenges, to say the least. But can you explain some of the challenges that Chinese characters were seen to pose to China itself in the 19th and 20th centuries?
0: Definitely, there were there were many, um, many that I would say, many problems that were that de- that were sort of deservedly laid at the feet of Chinese character writing, and some. That I think a sober analysis of history would say was an unfair thing to blame characters for. Um, So, I mean, there's a there's a sort of a there's a series. One of them would certainly be that in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, China is undergoing, like many polities on Earth around this time, is undergoing a uh, a transition. It's an uneasy one—a transition between one form of organizing political power and statecraft. Uh, so, and it's kind of wrapped up in the nutshell of the word empire uh, to a republic. And so, you know, this is this this takes a revolution to happen. It takes it. Arguably, takes a, a civil war to complete this transition. But one part of this transition was a radical reconceptualization of where legitimacy for state uh state rulers derives it, it the, the 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 shift from the derivation from heaven of the right to rule to a a shift at least in in people you know in the argument to the people whatever this word means well one of the issues and this is this happens in many of these sort of empire to nation state transitions is that people say well We need more of our people to be involved or part of this political enterprise that we're in. They're no longer subjects. They should now be educated, literate, participating, economically participating, politically participating actors. And one of the major barriers, and this is the argument that's being made at the turn of the century, is that Chinese character-based writing places people uh in China at such a comparative disadvantage to those in alphabetic contexts and um and so there there's many many reformers education reformers political reformers that are uh are making this case some of them a, a very small number of them i say would arrive at the extreme notion that what the the, the the solution to this problem is simply getting rid of uh, characters altogether and replacing them with another script. A great many more within society tried to figure out new techniques, new pedagogies, by which to introduce more Chinese students and readers to what they understood as the core vocabulary, the basics of Chinese. And it's a, there's a there was a lot of lot of stuff that was surrounding issues of literacy for for a number. Of the actors that I deal with in my, in my book, uh, they care about, they care about mass education, mass literacy, uh, very much, but they also care about things like how do you design a card catalog system for books in Chinese for our new public libraries that we're designing. So if I walk up to a card catalog and I want to find a book by a particular author or a particular title, what is the best way to sequence or organize Chinese character writing so that someone can find it as quickly as possible? They're often, again, comparing with the alphabets. They say, look how easy the alphabet It's a through Z. There's no ambiguity about where you put, you know, Alfred versus uh, Zimbabwe. It doesn't, you know, it's very simple uh, in Chinese. There is no one set way of organizing dictionaries, phone books, nameless, name lists and so forth. And so in the nineteen twenties, there is a kind of knock 'em down, knock 'em sock 'em uh debate which which involves library scientists and mass education people, and it's like a full blown <laughs> kind of press event where they argue with one another about the best way to organize telephone books and library card catalogs and the indexes of books and name registers and all of these things, uh, and they, they, the argument is made that because we because Chinese doesn't have a self-evident A through Z sequence, uh, and because modern capitalist economies and also modern republican states really require fast information retrieval, we are that China is operating in kind of slow motion as compared to the rest of the world, because every time we need to recall a file from a database, it takes us a few seconds longer than it does to recover an equivalent from somewhere in the alphabetic world. And if you take those thousands tens of thousands millions of acts of information retrieval and if each one of them takes a few seconds longer than their counterpart and you add them all up and suddenly we are we're kind of operating in this slow motion um as compared to the rest of the world so it's a really fascinating idea about uh that these theorists had about where china's problems were coming from some people were arguing at the scale of of war and scaling it and arguing at the scale of Empire and colonialism, uh, but there's this subset of people who are arguing that, in essence, China's problems are derived from millions of like tiny increments of delay, and that it's our job uh, as reformers, as Chinese reformers, to find a way to close that gap and speed up the language so that we can operate in a global, you know, a global economy and so forth um uh, so th- there's there's probably 20 more examples of critiques of, of Chinese character writing but that's probably a nice dyad one that is operating at the space of you know the ability to read and debate and argue and, and engage in interpretation and read those poems and read essays and then the other side which i think is more along the lines of the technolinguistic discussion uh in the book which is people fighting over how to organize this language in space and time.
2: So that's really interesting. It it makes me think about um, the way that you talk about the two different approaches to making Chinese uh, characters compatible with modern labor-saving technology like the typewriter, but not just the typewriter, these other things you mentioned, card catalogs and everything. And there are essentially two ways to go about it. You mentioned in the book you can try to adapt the technology to the language, like maybe Remington tried to do in the example you give where they have this phonetic alphabet for Chinese on their typewriter, but no one would use it. Or you could adapt the, uh, the technology to the language. Um, wh- what are some examples you see of, uh, of the most, or maybe not most successful, but the major efforts in both of these camps through the 20th century?
0: I think that's exactly right. And, and so these, <clears throat> these attempts to the, the debate for many was, you know, who has to change? Is it, is it Remington? that has to come and meet Chinese, or is it Chinese that needs to meet Remington? And the way that the history plays out, and also the way it's still playing out, is uh, that these two are locked in a, in a kind of never-ending a never-ending cycle, a never-ending dialectic that is still playing its way out, uh, is playing itself out. And so the example from the book that you mention of... Basically just trying to bring the language into a Remington more or less with the Remington more or less untouched is the case of the Chinese phonetic alphabet um, and it 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 just simply doesn't it doesn't take off it doesn't work. Remington and many other companies have fundamentally misunderstood what the Chinese phonetic alphabet was supposed to do, what it was made to do um, since it was invented by Chinese linguists but it was never meant to replace Chinese character based writing but they kind of harbored this dream that yeah maybe that's not why it was invented but we all know that Chinese characters will eventually disappear and we're hoping that this is the thing that puts the final nail in the coffin which is not what happened but it's 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 in the tension between those two those two more simple means of trying to solve the puzzle and one of the reformers put it really clearly uh when he said that Chinese characters have are innocent Chinese characters are innocent or Chinese characters have committed no crime and he goes on to say this is a a an overseas Chinese student in the nineteen teens who goes on to become an engineer and and to develop the prototype of the first mass manufactured typewriter for chinese um and he says you know, and more or less, any engineer worth the title would never want or never expect the world to change, to make their job easier. Like that's not the engineer's role in existence. It is to take the world as it is, or at least start from that vantage point and and then try to think outside of preconceptions to to meet the world where it is. So, in this case, the Chinese language can take part in, the informa- in this newest iteration of the information revolution. Um, and the maybe one place that is a good example of an attempt to meet each other halfway was an experimental Chinese typewriter. It was never mass-manufactured, uh, but it was fully conceived and prototyped by... Another overseas Chinese student uh, who was working at NYU in the 19 teens, uh, and he uh, he develops a a prototype Chinese typewriter in which the the goal was to figure out how to quote unquote spell Chinese piece by piece on the page, and I put spell in. In scare quotes, because he did not mean phonetically. He did not mean, okay, I, instead of writing the two characters for Beijing, the city of Beijing, I'm going to write B E I J. He didn't mean that. What he meant was, can we, uh, can we subdivide all Chinese characters into existence and discover the underlying repeating modular shapes, these little pieces of characters that continually show up Uh, in every character that exists. And if we can reduce Chinese to a set of these modular shapes and then put those shapes onto uh, keys or onto uh, type bars, or in this case, he he makes it into a cylinder that's inside the machine, then one could fit tens of thousands of characters onto a machine uh, simply by shattering them into pieces. And then the user would have to sit down at the machine and compose a the, the desired character module by module and so it, it it it's it's a it's an incredible idea uh and it it's related to the Western alphabetic notion of spelling a word you know the word "cat" is not on our typewriter we just we have c and a and "t and therefore we do have "cat" on our typewriter it's the same kind of concept but Abandoning or leaving behind the phonetic part of that, and just saying, "Okay, we're not caring about the sound of it; we care about the ability to build up something on the page so this if you if you if you look at this it's this is neither uh one hundred percent trying to take the typewriter and make it serve or subordinate it to the to chinese writing uh it's still It's still trying to build a machine that looks like a Western typewriter. But at the same time, it's also not simply 100% taking Chinese writing and subordinating it to uh, to a Remington. It's trying to meet the problem somehow halfway, and, and in essence saying, okay, both parties are going to have to give something up, I don't know if that's the right word, or are going to have to be willing to really uh, reimagine what you consider to be canonical first principles. So in Chinese... We have to give up the idea that the character is the base of our language. That the character is the fundamental unit of our language. It isn't. We're gonna, in this machine, it's going to be the pieces of characters that are the fundamental units. And if people are willing to accept that, i.e. learn how to use this machine in this way, then you can have all the characters you want. Uh, if you're unwilling to think that way, that's another, that's another issue. And then in the, on the, you know, vis-a-vis the, I mean this is sort of a, a diplomatic negotiation metaphor, but vis-a-vis the Remington, you know, delegation saying to them, Listen, you know, you're gonna have to give up on the idea of of of, uh, of sound and phonetics and the sounding out of words. That's that's not how this machine works. Um it's these symbols are not going to be letters of any alphabet. Uh technically speaking, it's not an alphabet we're talking about, it's a set of modular shapes uh but we can we can still you know think of the of the typewriter we but there but you don't have to give up on your idea of a typewriter as you know it. More or less it's kind of the typewriter you know. Um and this 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 machine in its day and age uh uh doesn't win the day, it doesn't gain mass manufacturing uh support, but arguably this idea of how to treat characters, how to quote unquote fit them into digital spaces Is very much alive and well even today. Uh, In fact, it's kind of made a comeback as one of the dominant ways of thinking of writing. When, when typeface designers, those you know, when practitioners or companies that are building a font, a digital font for Chinese, they often the 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 team that builds a Chinese font often thinks in these terms. They don't think, okay, I'm going to draw every Chinese character from scratch, uh, which would take you know, would take years and years. I'm going to scan them, and I'm going to create my Bezier curves, and I'm going to do all this sort of stuff. They say, what are the pieces and modules that make up characters? Let's let's focus to a certain extent at that level, and voila, the work that we did on this piece has a multiplier effect, because this module shows up in 50 other characters, or 100 characters, or 1,000 characters. So... That's, that's one of the, I mean, that's, that's the fascinating thing about history in general, but history of information technology in particular is it is completely non-linear and something that was last off the stage 80 years ago can suddenly in a different ecology be the way to, to do something. Um, yeah. And so I think that's, that might be a good example. That's, that's, that's the story of the young, the young overseas Chinese student I deal with, um, in the early part of
1: the book. I love in the book how you you explore this uh this sort of middle path this attempt to find this compromise and and at one point you you compare it to Charyptus and Scylla the the sea monster in the whirlpool uh I I I love this exploration of how on on one end you don't want the machine to change or limit uh, the language and the culture but then on the other side there's this reluctance to create something that will look like the monster machine that some are expecting a Chinese typewriter to be.
0: I like thinking in terms of agony <laughs> and, <laughs> think, and what I mean by agony is something to the extent of i don't know imagine you're an international transoceanic pilot and and you know you've got three hundred passengers on board and You know, you're, you're going over the sea and maybe you, maybe under certain circumstances, if you chose, you could just, it's something, you know, you don't feel well, whatever, you just hand over controls to your co-pilot. Short of these two people, uh, there's no one else to hand over controls to. There is this space of having to stay within a condition of anxiety, contradiction, irresolvability. And in essence, those, it's, it's that kind of staying in ambiguity, staying in uncertainty, that is probably the, the shared characteristic among the actors in the book. In a certain sense, that's intentional, and it's also, I'm trying to make an intervention because there are other actors, much more famous actors in Chinese history, uh, who receive you know the lion's share of attention when it comes to questions of the Chinese language and modernity and technology and stuff um and these are these are figures that i talk about in the introduction of the book who made these really sweeping iconoclastic statements that we should just get rid of characters altogether and use english or use french or use esperanto and they sound so iconoclastic and sexy and rebellious and really they're naive i mean these the statements that they're making are completely ridiculous uh on at one level uh simplistic and in many ways naive um I mean clearly there are societies on earth that have under, undertaken massive transformations in their orthographies, but the idea that China as a whole was going to just cut ties with writing uh, and uh was it sounds good on paper it 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 gets the attention certainly of contemporaries and even more so uh uh scholars of of China after the fact but what it what it obscures is that a those guys didn't win. You know, Chinese characters are with us. Uh, Chinese IT is booming. You know, so the, the prognosis that they were giving at, in, in the years 1900 to 1920 did not pan out, and yet we still teach their... We still assign their essays in all of our classes. There is this other kind of motley crew of individuals. Um, you know, most of them Chinese or Chinese descent, but also engineers and linguists and entrepreneurs all around the world... They're stuck and they understand that they're stuck. We can't, we're not going to just get rid of Chinese and go the alphabet and therefore we can all buy IBMs and that's the, you know, that's the benefit of us severing this. We're not going to do that, but we want IBMs. We want mainframes. We want microcomputers. We want telegraphy. We want these things. Um, Or in a more selfish way, we want to be the company that gives this to the Chinese market because we want to make money. You know, that's, that's there as well. But they're staying in this space of agony between where there's no way out. They have to stay in this and think in that space. You know, I I often don't think in terms of historical success or like where's the, you know, where's the when do the strings come in and when does when are the lovers reunited, but the lovers re- reunited is in essence at the end of the book because the the practice and the concept of input that is in that is baked in in an early form into Lin-Yu Tang's experimental 1940s typewriter, the Ming-Kwai, that way of building a typewriter is something that is born out of that that tension, that that agony, that irresolvability that all of these individuals are living in for, for decades. I mean, arguably, I mean, not just any one individual, but as a cast of characters, there are people that are living in that space for a century and are ass they're not giving in to easy iconoclastic flashy uh you know statements but neither are they saying well i guess we should pack it up and go home we can't take part in the global this new iteration of the global information revolution they're just staying in that space and so i have admiration not 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 because of what they build or that they made money or that they're you know in a sort of romantic sense but that, uh, staying in that kind of space is not a very rewarding thing. Um and, but, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people in the story are really in that space. And that's the, that's, that's where, and also just to bring it back a little bit, uh, to the discussion of technolinguistic, the technolinguistic space is where these, this motley crew is focusing most of their attention. They're saying, to, to themselves, to the world, okay, we want to keep Chinese characters. What does that mean exactly? What that means is that when we pick up a book in 20 years in China, we want to see Chinese characters. When someone sits down, goes to the telegraph, the, the, the post office, and wants to send a telegram, we want it that the sender can write this out in Chinese and that the recipient, when they receive it, can receive something in Chinese with Chinese characters in it. Like, Let's be very specific about what we mean about preserving the language. And then, and then, the, and then, the next kind of collective statement out of their mouth is, "Okay, what are we willing to blow up and totally dismantle and rebuild in radical new ways in order to achieve that effect?" Uh And the stuff that they're willing to blow up and build and be iconoclastic with regards to is is mainly the stuff that is. I use this metaphor in the book. It's like it's under the street, it's in the sewage system, it's in the walls, and the electrical, and the you know the the air conditioning system. It's it's in the way that the library card catalogs are organized. It's in the way that we break down characters and we put them into pieces inside a machine. It's lots and lots and lots of stuff. But if we're successful, the user, let's say, or the recipient of the message. Won't necessarily have to worry about that stuff. They'll still be able to experience the Chinese character writing environment. Um, and it's not glorious work. You know, it's, it's not the space of poetry. It's the space of the predecessor of arguing over the Unicode, you know, Unicode regulations and protocols and stuff. It's, it's, it's technical dogged work. But they're convinced, and ultimately they they, they prove it to be so, they're convinced that that's the place where Chinese can be preserved and saved.
2: All right, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have more of our interview with Thomas Mulaney. All right, we're back. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship of um, politics and values to what could be written on some historical incarnations of the Chinese typewriter? Like I'm thinking of uh, the machines with limited numbers of character slugs and how the inclusion and placement of the character slugs could be influenced by anything, I guess, whoever's designing it, maybe Christian missionary zeal or Maoist ideology. And then as a second part, do you think that's unique to the history of the Chinese typewriter or there are, are there ways that politics and values influence what can be done on other composition and printing devices, even alphabetic ones? The
0: Chinese typewriter that ends up being mass manufactured and becomes the quintessential, uh, model for Chinese typewriters is the, the common usage Chinese typewriter and for this machine, in essence, the, the the compromise at play is, okay, how do we fit all tens of thousands of characters on this machine? The answer is we don't. The answer is what we should be doing is a rigorous, almost proto-digital humanities, distant reading analysis of as big of a corpus of Chinese text as possible. We should be counting the number of times every single one of our characters appears and then do a frequency analysis. And based on that frequency analysis of tens of thousands of characters, we should figure out what is the the minimum number of characters that we would need for the maximum amount of utility, all with the understanding that in this mode, we can't have it all. We can't have all of our characters on the machine. So the outcome of this is the common usage machine, which by the midpoint of the 20th century, gives the user a tray bed with uh, 2,450 characters on it, so roughly 2,500, which is a a small percentage of the tens of thousands of characters that exist, but as they figured out uh, through these statistical analyses, which are all done by hand, uh, that these account for 85 or more percent of of everything that you're going to need it for. And then... So now this raises um, interesting possibilities and questions with regard to politics and politics of language because uh when once you start saying that not all characters get on the machine the question naturally emerges well who decides and what's the basis for deciding who's in and who's out and if something is out what does that do uh from the user's perspective in terms of what they write so a is that the politics are alive and well the the some of the one of my favorite examples there. There's I guess two from the political realm. From the perspective of early Chinese Republicans, those who wanted to overthrow the empire and, and found a republic uh, and revolutionaries, one of the bad guys of Chinese history is the first uh, de facto president of the republic after the revolution. Uh, this gentleman Yuan Shikai, who's a comes from a military background, and he's understood as having betrayed the revolution because shortly after the revolution of 1911 uh, overthrows the final dynasty in China and establishes a republic, this this fellow, um, under the advising, under the counsel of his of his uh, kind of entourage, decides to reestablish empire, and he names himself an emperor, uh, and it causes another more or less kind of small-scale civil war in any anyway, he dies of a natural he dies a natural death, and then he leaves China in this political vacuum that gives rise to what's called the warlord period, where there's no central authority. He's 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 not a love he's not a beloved figure by many revolutionaries. So what's interesting is that when you get to tray beds of Chinese typewriters um, in the early 20s, his name, uh, the characters that make up his name, will are not on the tray bed. They're kind of stuck in what's called the secondary usage box of characters, which is a, a wooden box that contains a few more thousand characters that the typist can 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 use if they need a character that's not on the tray bed. They just use a pair of tweezers, they pluck it out of the wooden box, they put it on the tray bed, and then they go ahead and, and use it. You know, this could in a certain sense this could be accidental. Not all the characters in his name are as common as others, but some are not uncommon. Um but there is there are these decisions that that the designers of these machines get to make about what to include and what not, and often for political reasons. So, so the same typewriter engineer who leaves this man's name off the or the characters that make up this man's name off the machine puts his name the characters that make his name onto the common usage tray bed, even though the characters in his name are very uncommon. So there's it's to me that's kind of like the nineteen eighties when computer programmers would leave little messages in the comments field of 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 programs that they were making. It's sort of it's sort of the, the you know the, the designer's prerogative to leave their signature as they will. Um, a more extreme example comes from the nineteen forty nine revolution, the communist revolution, and this one's a bit more subtle. The, so the tray bed, the 2,450 characters that the user has in front of him or her, they are, they're not, they're organized according to basically, let's call it dictionary organization, a, a way of organizing characters that would have been familiar to anyone using them, but they were also further subdivided into most most common characters, and those were in the very center of the tray bed, and then second most common characters, which were on the left and right flank of this rectangular matrix. Uh, and the idea, quite simply, was because you had to go from one character to the next to the next to the next, you want to group and cluster and clump together common usage characters as close as possible. So you know we we, we really want that center piece, that center part of the tray bed to have as many of the most frequent characters as possible. Well in the nineteen twenties, thirties, forties uh prior to the communist revolution, the character Mao, which by itself means a follicle of hair, uh, like hair on your head, is a very common character, and but it's not the most common of characters. So it was on the right flank of the tray bed. Well, after the 1949 revolution, that character was promoted, basically. It was moved from the flanks of the machine to this center most, most, most common region. And for obvious reasons that this is the surname of Mao Zedong of Chairman Mao whose name engineers rightly understood was going to be in lots and lots and lots of texts and so suddenly it becomes easier for a typist faster for a typist to produce his name you know the, the question often comes i i i i often encounter the question do i think that these dimensions cycle back into what the user is doing and basically you know shape what it is that they're writing does do our technologies shape what we write and the answer i think in a kind of first principles way is undoubtedly yes there it's un, it's un, it's undoubted that when you create different levels of difficulty and 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 time to produce one word versus another word that this Kind of an economics of energy sense cycles back into how we use those technologies. The real challenge is how do we study that methodologically, so that we don't simply, you know, find in our in our research a foregone conclusion. Um, that's a very 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 hard thing to think of as an historian. Like, how would I actually put that hypothesis to the test? Um, you know, because then you'd have to really build a research program that would allow you to do that. One way that's possible. Is uh, is and it's a pretty it's it's actually pretty fun. Is in the 1950s and 60s Chinese typewriters were increasingly used to publish books and articles. So someone would um, use uh, mimeograph paper, produce a master copy of a text, and then with a mimeograph machine would create a run of maybe anywhere from 10 to 150 and hundreds. And this was a perfect kind of technology. This is a niche that the typewriter plus mimeograph was perfect for, because if you're going to publish only 100 copies of a book, you don't want a printing press. It's just too too much overhead for too little output. But neither do you want to write that stuff by hand. So anyway, on the, in these books, which uh, I've amassed this collection of, you can see that whenever the typist encountered a, a word or a character or a series that was not on the machine he or she would simply skip ahead and leave spaces there and then write it in by hand onto the mimeo paper and then produce the book. So you could actually see, A, which characters were not on this person's machine and uh how many, how often or how willing the typist was to do this, to leave spaces and then enter a word. Um, now the question would be is that over time, are there fewer of these handwritten insertions are there there more handwritten insertions? And if there were fewer handwritten insertions over time, this is kind of building a research program on the fly here, if there were fewer insertions over time, it would be reasonable to hypothesize that that typists are using the strategy of basically synonym replacement. It's like, well, I don't have that word, which is not in there. Let me just replace it with a synonym or leave it out uh, in favor of a character that is here. Because we know that the typewriter itself never changed size. You only have 2,500 to deal with. It's not as if they grew over time, and that's what would account for the lack of insertions. So there's, you'd have to figure out how to actually submit this to the acid bath of reason. Um, but I do think that on a first principles basis, it's undoubted that this, that this feedback loop exists. It, 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 it's hard to imagine that it could not exist.
2: This is kind of silly, but I kind of can't help but wonder if uh, the availability of emojis is shaping our language or the way we think, like what you have an emoji for and what you don't have an emoji for.
0: I think that's true. And also animated GIFs. If you think about someone who wants to articulate something, I mean, think about Twitter and the number of times that some political figure says something and it's so befuddling that instead of the person bothering to articulate what is it about this statement by said political figure that is ridiculous or causes cognitive dissonance or it's a contradiction or it's illogical. Instead, it's a post of a two second clip of some famous actor, you know, looking befuddled at the, the camera and that's it. And that's like, as if that captures it. I think that's what I'm getting in there with this, with economy of expression. I mean, one is, takes time and it's hard and you have to, and you, you're, you're sticking your neck out there to figure out how to put this into words and how do I get my feeling, which is going on in my mind, that this is an illogical statement and how do I make the argument that it is. That's, that's like a, that's an afternoon, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's, that's, that takes a whole day, a whole week, a whole month to figure out how to put it and it's so fast and you got to get it out there because there's going to be another illogical statement any second now. So might as well just take, and now, of course, the fact that these animated gifs are preloaded into the technology, let me just find a preloaded one, uh, that is spacious enough and ambiguous enough that I can encode my feeling in it, and then I'll post that instead. And it takes me, you know, all of five seconds. There's that dimension of it, so that's one where it's cycling into expression and also the capacity to express. Because it takes good, you know, a good book isn't written, it's rewritten, a good writer, is basically a good editor is what they really are, um, and so if you never learn how to edit and how to revise and how to, then can you become a good writer? That's that's probably not, but it's open for question, I guess. The other part is uh, archivability. If someone takes the time, even if they fail, you know, even if their argument doesn't hold, if they take the time to express why they found some statement illogical or Shocking, or whatever it might be, whatever the case might be. Well, it exists in a textual form that can be attributed to a person and a time and a place. How in the world is an historian in the year 2300, or you know, 2300, if it exists, going to cite? Uh, I don't know the animated GIF A that was used 700,000 times in 20,000 different scenarios as as a way of trying to articulate what people in the year, whatever, 2018, thought. It it, it almost, you know, and these are the reverberations of technologies of expression, technologies of writing that we don't have to deal with, uh, but of course someone will, maybe.
1: (laughs) All right, Tom, it looks like we're out of time here, but we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to chat with us. Uh, really enjoyed the book. It's a, it's a great read for people that are interested in Chinese history, uh, the history of technology, linguistic technology, uh, linguistics itself. Uh, so thanks for chatting with us.
0: Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks a lot. Alright, so there you have it. Thanks again to Thomas Mullaney for chatting with us about his book, The Chinese Typewriter. Again, it's out from uh, MIT Press. You can get that in print. You can get it as a, a digital uh, ebook, however you like to consume your media. And he's not stopping here. The next book in the series is going to be The Chinese Computer. Oh boy! Yeah, and he he teased it a, a little for us, uh, kind of off mic. But it's going to involve n- not only the some of the, the the agencies that were involved in the first book, but also uh, the U.S. government and uh, and sort of the 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 espionage world of the the
2: Cold War as well. Yes, we will go deeper and deeper into the realms of composition surrogacy. If you're curious what that means, uh, check back in with the Chinese computer in the future.
1: In the meantime, be sure to head on over to stuffedableyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, links out to various social media accounts, etc. And on the landing page for this episode, we will be sure to link out to uh, a place where you can buy Mulaney's book as well as uh, Mulaney's uh, profile at
2: Stanford. Thanks as always to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know your feedback on this episode or any other, or if you'd like to, uh, you know, request a topic for the future, something that interests you, you think might interest us and the other listeners as well, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.